Hey, hey, everybody. Ah, I am so excited to share this interview with you. It is between myself and my eighth grade English teacher, Mrs. Esmiel, K. Esmiel, Kathleen. You know, I'm not sure, do I still call her Mrs. Esmiel? Is it K? Is it Kathleen? Right? Like, I'm 34. But listen, she's 84. She was 63 when she taught me English. She's 83 when we did this interview. So 20 years later, I went back and found her in Colorado Springs. She was still living a few blocks from the school where she taught. And I wanted to meet her to say thank you. I wanted to thank her for the way that she showed up, the way that she inspired me to dig deeper and to find untapped potential that I didn't know that I had or that I didn't believe that I had or wasn't aware that I could have. And also to understand how she did this. How did she show up to me and thousands of other students over her career to elicit this kind of enthusiasm and inspiration from them that they didn't know that they had? And how did she do that? Was it intentional or was it innately the way that she just naturally showed up? I wanted to understand the philosophy that she brought to her role as an educator and the practical skills that allowed us to all collectively create an environment where we could become the best versions of ourselves much quicker than we probably would have in any other classroom. So you can hear in this uh, lobby in downtown Colorado Springs at a hotel, we jump right into it. She wastes no time opening up about stories. I couldn't even hit record fast enough, but here we are listening to the wisdom of an 83-year-old English teacher from Colorado Springs, Colorado, who was active politically. She played a huge role in her community as a volunteer. She's an author. She's written plays, operas. It's incredible, really, all of the enthusiasm and passion that she has brought to so many different projects in her life. And I am so grateful to have benefited directly from her enthusiasm and passion for life. And I hope that there are skills that she is able to teach us that we can then embody for ourselves so that we get to bring out the best in each other. We get to tap into that inner potential and that creative inspiration that we all do have within us and spread that around to other people as well. So I hope you enjoyed this interview. Thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to continuing this journey as I wander through the Western half of the United States, talking with people and learning about myself. Thank you. I was teaching you of 2000, 2001, yep. you said. That, okay. was, that was the year I did Chicago and I. That was a huge group, uh, the uh, Japanese American internment story that I wrote. Oh, and I didn't know that you wrote that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wrote uh, five plays in an opera. Wow. <laughs> so in addition to teaching uh, English at Eagle View Middle School, you've always had these other projects on the go, I guess. Right? Always, uh, just by coincidence. But then I was always very, very involved when I was young in uh, student government and everything. Right. And I was in a ballet company when I was young. Right. And so I was... Uh, before they had the term hyperactive, yeah. I was one. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and I was very academically oriented, but my father was a football coach. Okay. So boys were off limits. He would say, I've heard how they talk in the locker room. And, right. and when an all-American football player from across town came to ask me out, because I said, there's no hope, but you yeah. can ask my father. That's hmm. the only way. And my father looked at him and he said, you know, Billy, I know you're an all-American anything but I've heard you talk in the locker room you're not taking my daughter anywhere wow wow <laughs> so, so I, it, it I filled all this my energy time to go do something else instead <laughs> yeah so yeah. I filled my time with yeah. everything and was always involved with the arts yeah. and um so when I uh, went through university 
I was very involved there running everything. You know, I was so used to it yeah. that by the time I, was, I began teaching, I was older, an older hmm. person. I had been an Air Force wife for 20 years and moved all over the place okay. and had a sense of the world and you know how I thought things should be done. So by the time I t- began teaching, I had real strong feelings about what I thought young people needed to know to leave school if they could only go through the 12th grade, if they could not afford to go on to university. I wanted them to be prepared for just about anything. Right. And you may remember how hard it was. Oh my goodness. Well, and this is, this is why I'm here is because, and this is the purpose of this conversation as well is, um, I want to, I'll explain more about my entire story, maybe over lunch a little bit, because I I know that we want to kind of, you know, compress this. And I really want to capture some of the value that I, uh, that I'm so excited to, to hear from you. But um, why I'm here is because in, in eighth grade, I had you as an English teacher and uh, I was, I didn't really know anybody and I was very, I had no, I didn't realize how little confidence I had. And that's usually the case is we actually don't realize how unconfident we are until we find the confidence. And then we look back and we say, wow, that was a dark time. <laughs> and um, in, in, the experience of showing up to your first day of your class and you know we all get our timetables and i'm looking at my teachers and i'm looking at my room and i'm sharing it with other you know people in in my grade and they said oh you're in trouble now they said we've we've heard about her and, and i was like oh man i want the easy teachers right <laughs> we all want the easy teachers and then when i showed up i still remember that very first day of class and you kind of just like looked around and i don't know if you do this every year but you kind of just like looked around at everybody And you said something to the effect of, this is going to be very difficult. You're going to be pushed. You're going to work hard here. This is not an easy classroom. And I am not going to let you off the hook. And it was something to this effect. And, uh, and you just look around and the, and the classroom is just silent <laughs> and we're all, we're, we're, we're toast. Like we're nobody surviving great eight, eighth grade here. <laughs> and, uh, and what I found though, is that when you followed it up and started sharing some of your ideas and some of your wisdom and, and just, you elevated the conversation to a place that no other teacher I'd ever had had done before. Right. And, and I thought, well, this isn't hard. This is just substance, right? This is beyond a curriculum. This is a conversation. And I mean, that was eighth grade and I couldn't have possibly used those words to describe it then, but that is how I look at it now. And um, beyond, you know, my vocabulary uh, increased tenfold in your class, and you demanded that of us. the The words that you taught us, I don't know if you remember some of the words. Oh that you yes, like, truculent and <laughs> panache, right? <laughs> I have a story about panache. Oh, tell me. Uh, actually, um, if it was two thousand, two thousand one, we were there. Adam Johnson was in that class, yeah. and um, Adam, uh, he was uh, multiracial. Hmm. His father was uh, had had been. He was his mother was no longer married to him, but uh, was a white pilot, mm-hmm. and the mother was black. And Adam loved everybody. He didn't sit with anybody at lunch because he was on his feet all the time talking to everybody. Mm. And but he would also not confront me, but question things in ways that none of the other kids had the nerve to. Right. And so one day he looked at me and he said. Missy, when am I ever going to use the word panache? Mm-hmm. And I said, 
if you have the occasion to use it, it will be the only word that will really fit the situation and it will make a big difference. Right. Well, he decided, or I guess his mother decided to send him to prep schools in Connecticut. So he was at Exeter as a biracial kid Mm. in a pretty white area. And they looked at him challenging and, you know, clearly we're going to discount him and said, what makes you think you would fit in here? Mm. And he said, I told them, because I have panache. (laughs) And he he got in. (laughs) And he he could not wait to come back and tell me that story. (laughs) That's so true. And I actually, I find that, um, you know, it's not that I have this list of words from eighth grade, but I notice when they come up and when I, when I do have the occasion to use that specific word, I always think of you, right? Like I always Uh. think of that classroom and it's like, uh, so for that reason, your legacy in my life has lived far on beyond that last day of school. And I, I have probably consciously thought about you, uh, once a month for 20 years, which is pretty wild. I'm deeply touched. (laughs) I am. I loved my students. I I don't know that you all realized it because I did live up to my promise that it would be a challenging class, but uh, you have all become such amazing people. Mm. And especially now with the world in such a tangle, uh, you know things that other people have still not yet learned and you've known them since you were young. And I have a lot of confidence that you will handle problems that are earth-shattering now uh, in a way that other generations really weren't quite prepared to handle. Yeah. So So I'm I'm happy to hear that you're you're banking off the knowledge that you gained. Absolutely. And and it was obvious that you cared because nobody could have put that much effort into something if they didn't like teaching, if they didn't like their students, if they didn't believe in what they were doing. And so even in that moment, it was very obvious. And um, so I wanted to I wanted to tell you a story, and I, again I don't rem- I don't know how much you remember about me specifically. I remember because uh, I it was racking my brain. It helps me if I know the year I had somebody. Right, right. Uh, what I remember was that you were small to, yeah. uh, compared to a lot of the other kids, but you were extremely quiet, mm. an observer. I thought, yeah. and I was never quite sure, you know, what you were internalizing. Right. But you were paying attention. I yeah. did know that. Yeah, yeah. And you seemed um, engaged but curious hmm. about what was going on, sure. which was always a lot. Yep. We did a lot of things. We did. Well, and so one of the first moments that I really remember after, you know, that first day of class is I went to India for a couple months during, uh, during eighth grade. So I was actually gone for a couple months. And the day I came back, you can imagine the shift and the divergence from oh, yes. from where the rest of the kids were and then what I had experienced and still not really having the language or even an outlet with which to share any of my experiences because none of the kids cared. They're like, oh, how was your trip? And I'm like, yeah, it was great. The end, right? And then you actually had me stand up in front of the class and said, Josh, and just spontaneously with no preparation. Um, and you said, Josh, why don't you get up and you tell us about what it was like in India? And uh, I was like, you know, immediately start sweating and my heart's pounding and adrenaline. And, and again, just like no confidence, but I was like, sure, like I'll stand up, I'll try. And that was one of the first moments that when I opened my mouth, I knew exactly what to say. And I didn't tell anything about Indian culture or Indian food. I told a single story of how I was walking down the street 
and this uh you know as it is there there's you know 25 percent of the population is considered like homeless or in deep poverty and so people are always asking you for money because they know that you have it right and they're asking for a few rupees right like a few pennies at that point and so this woman comes up to us and she's got kids and um you know i'm walking down the street with my family and she walks up to us and she says rupee 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 and uh and i say dad like let's give her let's give her some money and he's like oh okay sure like sure let's give her some money so he pulls out and we don't have any coins so we give her a bill which is like call it 10 rupees which is a lot to give to somebody on the street that'd be you know like it, it stood out and her eyes got wide and she looked at me as i gave it to her and then her eyes kind of narrowed and she looked at me and she said rupee rupee and she wanted more and she recognized if she can get this and she can ask again she was going to try and double that income and it was just this she turned very vicious like uh, like a vulturistic kind of mentality very quickly which really put me off and i was just very because i was looking for that emotional you know good feeling of having done something good and there was no real gratitude expressed there and then i was so frustrated and then um later that day uh this boy came up to me and he was about my age and he had two crutches and one foot and the other foot was hacked off at the ankle and he had this big bright white smile and big smiley eyes and he said rupee rupee and i was like you know what i had a, by that point in the day i had a coin and it was only uh it was one or two rupees right and i handed him that coin and uh and he looked at me and he said thank you and and he <laughs> you know marched over with his you know kind of stilts and uh, back to his friends and he showed them and he showed them all his friends the coin and they all went over and just like cheered and waved at us and said thank you and they didn't ask for anything else none of them right and that was also the day that that i had uh, like bought this chain this gold chain that i've worn every day every day since and so that story of gratitude and the appreciation that he showed and the fact that it was not related to what he had or what he was given but it was just a state of mind that stuck with me every time like every time i think of this chain and people say oh why are you wearing that chain it's like it, it became enmeshed with that story and so i shared that story in front of the class and cried the whole time and i've always been very uh emotional and, and quite vulnerable but um and i felt kind of embarrassed by that but then i sat down and i realized that almost immediately that i had no idea what i was going to say when i stood up when you asked me to and yet i said the most real thing that i possibly could have and i was very aware then that i have a skill of speaking in front of people and whether it's improvised or whether it's you know intentional and and scripted and so i actually gained quite a bit of confidence that day simply because you put me out of my comfort zone and and then i rose to that occasion and so i was appreciated that now when it comes to speaking in front of people the last story that i have that i really want to share with you because this is the most foundational thing that i still go back to never mind the vocabulary and you you pushing us as humans um at the end, and I don't know if you do this all the time, but at the end of every year, we did a play. Mm -hmm. And so we did. I always do that. Okay, you did, yeah. And that was a massive project for an English class, like very substantial and kind of out of the box. I mean, <laughs> if we wanted drama, we would have gone to drama, Miss Esmiel. But you actually had us do like a full-blown play with set design. 
and memorized scripts in front of our parents uh, in the class where we pull back the divider between the two classrooms, open it up. Like it was quite, quite a production. Mm -hmm. And I think we probably had between six and eight weeks to put this whole thing together, right? Does that sound right? That's right. And every day you gave us time to memorize our lines. And every day I went and sat out with uh, the, the cool kids that weren't memorizing their lines, or so I thought. And it turns out that they were. They just <laughs> weren't doing it then because they were too busy socializing. <laughs> and by the time it was the day before the play, uh, I looked down at my script and I had highlighted the lines that I had memorized. And I had gotten to where uh, they are the book is stapled, which means that it was right down the middle. I had memorized half the lines. And at the end of that, uh, at the end of that half play, I started having to improvise Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I just tried to remember what's the first line and what's the last line. So you and could feed it to so the other characters. To and I might have done that a few times if I'm giving myself some credit. Uh, but most of the time, I just stopped talking. And then they had to remember their line without that anchor, right? And, uh, and they were at the end of the play, I had, you know, we got a standing ovation and I was Oberon. So I was one of the main characters. Yes, definitely. And the king of the forest. King of the forest. That's right. And so I had lots of lines and I'd only memorized half and the every, and I was interacting with almost every character throughout that last half of the play. So everyone was extremely frustrated with me and I felt very embarrassed of that. But I also thought it was pretty impressive that. Uh, at the end, there's a standing ovation. And when I asked my parents right after the play, I said, did, could, did anything seem off? And they said, no, it looked good. And I asked a couple other people, you know, everybody thought it was fine. And I'm like, I did it. I just improvised Shakespeare. <laughs> but you know who I didn't fool? <laughs> you. <laughs> and you. And everybody else left and they all packed up and all the parents drove off the kids. And, and uh, you said, Josh, you need to stay. Your parents can come back and get you later. And I said, yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> I'm busted. And we sat there and had a conversation, just the two of us in your classroom. And it was probably, you know, 1030 at night after the longest day of your, you know, year usually, right? At the end of this play. And, uh, and you said, Josh, what are you doing? How are you spending your time? What do you care about? Like, when are you going to start showing up? And <laughs> it's a speech that I know that you've given probably hundreds of times and a conversation that you've uh, invited students into maybe thousands of times. Um, but I really sat there and I said, yeah, you know what? I'm not, I'm not happy and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not showing up and I'm frustrated at home and I have no friends. And more than that, the people that I do spend my time with, I'm really concerned about them. And I don't feel like I have any sort of support and you just showing up to that conversation and you seeing me fall short of an expectation. But then instead of just like being uh, taking like a punitive approach, right? There's no talk of detention or even mm. reparations for that. It was really just like, how did this happen? That conversation uh, and you just, you know, being there as that support and seeing me and really hearing what I had to say, um, elevated the standard for all human connection that I have had since because I didn't know that was possible and so I really appreciate that uh, you know you, you jogged my memory because I have taught over 2,000 students yeah. <laughs> but but 
you know, I can remember s specific things. <clears throat> and I do recall why we had that conversation or why I took that time. Um, I had had, I had taught the Bayani kids uh, who were, their parents were from India. They were first generation Americans, Rajat and Yasmin. And I had taught Radhika Nayak, who had gone through all her ritual, blessing everything hours before school so she could perform a dance, which was uh, in sync with her religion, so it was a very serious thing. And <clears throat> the families were very focused on education, and they were high-achieving kids. And you were quiet and not as interactive. I'm sure that's why I put you on the spot with what had happened with India because the other kids would come back and they would want to convey what they had seen so that other kids would appreciate the country more here and realize that they'd never seen poverty and never would. Right. That they'd never see anything like they had experienced. And <clears throat> so I was hoping you know, to bring you out and gave you a year because you were just so quiet. You were in class, yeah. just um, without the, um, well, I knew it was probably self-confidence. I just didn't know why. I didn't know, you know, what was going on. But you have to be so careful that you don't invade uh, a kid's uh, inner sanctum, so to speak, because if they're not ready, yeah. it, it, it's horrifying and terrifying to them, and it can be damaging. You know, it may, it, you could come across as being someone who doesn't care, you know, and is being critical or judgmental. Right. And, but by the end of the year, I always did the place because they brought kids together. Absolutely. It didn't matter who did what everybody had a really significant role and had a sense of unity that they'd probably never had before unless they were on a team. But teams were win-lose, and theater is not win-lose. Everybody wins if everybody pulls together. Right. And so the dynamic to me was really important in terms of those plays at the end, and it was that last opportunity for me to try to reach into the heart of the kid, you know, the very spirit of a child, yeah. and have them have something happen. Yeah. And then I had to trust that they'd have memories to uh, give it shape. Unpack it later, yeah. And I'm so glad that that happened for you because, uh, you know, once you're gone, the opportunity's over with. Yes, I, there was one year that kids called me Mrs. Intense. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they were a cheeky bunch yeah. <laughs> and so proud of themselves, you know, that they had the audacity to do that. But um, I did feel such tremendous responsibility for each one of you, yeah. knowing that... Um, I had no idea what your lifespan would be, what truly your family life was. Right. It's a very complex thing to be a teacher. Mm. And though I had hoped to be a physician, <laughs> because my father had wanted to be, but he was the sixth of six brothers. <laughs> they kept putting each other through college, and he just decided he could not expect his brothers to do that. So I wanted to do that for him and surprise him. Wow. But in Tampa, Florida, where I was the top student, 
throughout my whole life. Yeah. My scholarships were given to the boys. And it was an era when it was explained to me, I thought I was permitted to stay home so I could work on my speech for the graduation. No, they were having a big meeting to see what to do about the girl who was one of three girls who took every single one of the science and upper level science and math classes and achieved at the highest level. And that had not happened before. And they didn't know what to do about it, but they just knew it was wrong that a girl should win every single award. And so what they decided to do, because the kids said to uh, the principal and the parents and everything, because they had this group. I didn't know they were all meeting without me. (laughs) And I worked on my speech. I thought they had done something nice for me. What they had done was talk to the kids and see what they thought, and the parents had made it really clear that boys should get those scholarships. And But the kids said, well, we wouldn't vote her for homecoming queen or something like that, because she's really bossy and runs everything. But she earned everything. So she should get at least the awards. Right. So... So the next did, did day. They, did they think that the scholarship money would be like wasted on you? Was that kind of the mentality? or What they actually told me the next day, because I was called in, and this was a huge shock to me at you know the age you are at that age. But I was very much like I am now, a very strong young woman. And I was in a ballet company there locally at the time. You know, I was busy doing everything. It was the first time that I personally experienced injustice. And they told me, um, Kay, um, you will get married and a man will support you. But the boys are going to have to go out into the world and they're going to have to take care of their families. And, you know, I listened to this whole thing. At about that same time, um, one of the most wonderful boys in our class, who was an athlete, he was everything. He was just one of those pure souls, you know. He was killed <laughs> hitchhiking home because he, didn't, he wasn't well enough off to have a car. And uh, what we called hoods at the time, boys that were just, you know, not like, bad boys these days, but, you know, um, rebels without a cause, so to speak, uh, picked him up to take him home because everybody loved this kid. His name was Mike Corbley. But they had all been drinking. He had just been over on Davis Island with Mm -hmm. his girlfriend and had to walk everywhere. He was, when they hit a palm tree going around Bayshore Boulevard, which was not banked properly because it was such an old road, uh, was thrown out and he was killed he was the only one they were all you know hurt but he was the only one killed so i had to address that at graduation that happened after i found out you know i wasn't going to have all these scholarships that so i could go to duke which is where i was thinking of going because i could you know uh, go to medical school there too so i just silently at that point in my life decided what i thought about life and injustice Hmm. And what a person who's young would have to know to cope with the shock of the fact that often you're treated so well as a child, you have no idea that once that chronological age shifts you into adulthood overnight after your birthday, that everything changes. And I, um, and injustice has always been the one thing that I have had no patience with and have stood up against 
most especially for the younger generation. And right now, you know, I'm just too old to be as powerful as I once was able to be in terms of helping young the younger generation. So now I'm your oldest cheerleader. Right. But I, mm-hmm. I just so appreciate how complex the world has become in a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, I was born into it kind of because... Um, when I was three, that's when I first could read and understood a globe because of Pearl Harbor. Right. My two-year-old cousin was there with his dad, my father's brother. And that's when, you know, my first introduction to the world, so to speak. Right. So I, I am a really passionate person. Yeah. It makes me excited to see that passion in my former students because no matter how challenging your life will be, it will be meaningful still the last time you closed your eyes. I know that as a fact. And um, we need, you know, more people to understand that the real wealth in life is knowing who you are, what you have to offer, and that the world's not all about you. And your greatest joy is what you can do to make the world around you or the people around you have a chance, so to speak. I love that. So, Oberon, now you understand (laughs) why we had some conversations. It was, uh, Hmm. I think, um, I was honoring you. I hope you always felt, because I always felt, it was my duty to treat young people with dignity and respect. If they lost it, it was hard to get back. (laughs) And I think I told you all that. But I wanted you to feel what it felt like to have a, a, a clearly... Uh, organized and educated adult respect you right right you know what's interesting to me is like when when you're with with that philosophy of respect and about you know imploring your students to focus on a life of contribution um and you know a wider angle lens on the complexities of the world it's interesting that you have all of that and 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 yet it's the really small moments that tend to make that difference, right? Because I guess that philosophy kind of just drips through every action, every way that you, sh- you show up intentionally to, to your students and to the world. But from the other side, it just feels like, I mean, obviously it was a very important conversation to me, but it was just one conversation, right? And that's what really made the difference for me. And, uh, and you just also then never really know which conversation it is. Right. And wit and which students you actually impact. And I know that's a lesson that I, I think back on knowing that you've taught over 2000 students. And I remember that because you, you told us, you're like, I have taught thousands. Right. And, uh, and I was like, I can't imagine the difference that you've must have made to so many people and yet never actually hear about it. You never actually know, right. Like which ones it actually made the difference for. But, um, so it was important to me to be able to tell you that I am one of those and that um, I have so much gratitude for the way that, that you showed up then. And as much as you think you might be less powerful now, in a sense, I think your power is actually magnified through the, um, the actions of your other students and you have become even stronger now than you were back then. So I just thank you. Well, I'm, I'm deeply touched. I am really, truly, Josh. It makes me really happy um, for you that you have chosen to be involved because there's more choice in who we are than we realize, I think. You know, and a lot of people give up too quickly. 
they don't realize that really hard work can be so gratifying. It's why the poor who work really hard, three jobs or whatever, to make sure their children have a chance, are far happier, far happier than extremely wealthy people who buy things but don't invest their personal and emotional feelings in the young. And there's just nothing more exceptional than have a moment like this, you know, for me to get to see that you're, you are a wonderful person. You understand honor, you understand respect, you understand the things that will not only give you happiness, but you will be a gift to the people whose lives you cross. And that you're paying attention because uh, everybody has opportunities to do so much more. And I think waiting until they're older is a big mistake. There, there, there are all these amazing little people running around trying to you know, sell lemonade to give money to some other child in their class who has to have surgery or something. You know, that's why with student council, I always gave a social life and ran the student store and all that, which was part of it. But the other part always was what could we do? And we could raise $1,000 in a week for anything if it was important. And I wanted you all to feel like what it felt like and feel like, oh my gosh, you know, if I work with my peer group, we're amazing what we can do. We can be powerful. We can really, truly make a difference. So this is uh, an amazing thing you're doing because I assume that you have stopped your whole life as it was to pursue thoughts while you're still young enough and perhaps uh, aren't uh, putting family members in an inconvenient situation. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm single, and um, uh, you know, I've spent the last uh, eight years working in commercial real estate. Uh, I made you know good money. I had to work hard to become you know one of the one of the the best at what I do <coughs> where I lived, and um, and I was proud of that. But uh, there was a sense of uh, complacency uh, sneaking into my lifestyle, and I didn't. And I looked around at all the nice things, and I, and you know, I loved my job, and I loved my family, and I loved the, you know, I was dating a girl, um, and I have incredible friends, and they're and they're as passionate or more passionate about life than I am, and we build each other up, and we connect over a desire for personal growth that is the that is the core value that holds us together and so we're feeding off of each other all the time so i have an incredible life and, and what i noticed was um my energy was shifting from commercial real estate and i was starting to focus more on writing and i had always known i was a good writer because of your class that's where i really broke out and as much as i was a quiet kid i noticed that i was a good writer and it was the first time that i got grades from a very difficult teacher but that I was actually like better than a lot of the other kids. And, um, you know, if I turned in my work, yes. uh, <laughs> I do remember that, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but I liked writing and I was good at it. And so I've actually gravitated more towards, you know, re-engaging with words and what was I passionate about and what can I share and what do I write about? And very organically, it turned into a focus on 
how do we come be- how do we become better people how do we live more intentional lives how do we connect better with the people in the world around us how do we become the version of ourselves that we always wish we were but we get stuck in that narrative of thinking well that's just not who i am and how do we ascend that gap right and and so this is what kind of started coming out of me and i started posting it online and it and it actually started resonating with quite a few people and i got a bit of a like a, a small following there um and this was happening as I started realizing I was running out of motivation to go chase bigger clients and make more money. Um, and, uh, and so very rapidly, uh, over this fall, basically on one day I went for a walk and, uh, because of COVID and some of the restrictions there, like it's getting, it's getting pretty crazy in Canada, right? Like it's very divisive. It's very angry. It's extremely toxic. Uh, everybody thinks that they've got it figured out. And, um, and yet with, even with, you know, the people that chose to get vaccinated, we're still having, you know, the, everything's shut down. You can't see your family for Christmas. And it's just like quite oppressive. Um, and people are afraid of each other. And it's like, uh, you know, they're getting caught in the narratives that the mainstream media will tell them. And there's very little room for honest, slow discussion. And I recognize that I could either stay on the Canadian side of the border and functionally be trapped in, in Canada, or I could uh, leave and go somewhere else and try and make a new version of myself. And so what happened was it was this push factor out of Canada because I didn't want to be trapped. And then it was also this pull factor into, but what do I want to do? Because if I'm just running from something, then it actually still controls me. And so I said, well, I need to get more passionate about the new version of what I would become and about the path that it would take to get there than I am about this current life, which is actually really good. And so on a three hour walk on a big park in, uh, in Calgary, Alberta, I, um, I, started envisioning what do I want? What am I passionate about? What if I just did what I'm passionate about? What if I didn't worry about whether I had enough money or knowledge or experience or a following or anything like that? And I just said, I'm just going to go for it. And I thought, well, that's what I've been writing about for the last year and a half. And I've been telling people about all this stuff. Like, so what if I took all of that stuff that I've been talking about from a pretty comfy existence? And I said, time to put on your own shirt and pants and go live that life. Right. And so I did, I decided that day on the Hill, I said, you know what, this isn't even about the COVID stuff. It's not about the, the oppressive laws. This is about, am I ready to go out and be, and do the things that I'm the most passionate about and apply myself in the highest capacity I ever have and leave this high comfortable perch and descend down into the darkness and confront despair and loneliness and see how that shapes me, how that molds me. If I can apply the same lessons that I have been teaching and learning uh, in small ways in my life and apply them on the biggest possible stage that I can imagine, where would that take me? And so this journey effectively, I left Canada 30 days after making that decision, dissolved my entire life, quit the job, sold everything I have, broke up with a girlfriend, said goodbye to my friends and family and, uh, and just crossed the border and then said, okay, what am I doing? And I'm still trying to figure that out. And that's actually, I'm happy about that because I don't want to think that I have all the answers, but for the last, uh, seven and a half weeks, um, I've been living in this van. I've been working my way through Montana, Wyoming, Colorado. I actually got COVID about three weeks ago. And, uh, just as I was starting out in the van, actually, total experience. (laughs) I got a flat tire. I was, and I was like, man, this is hard. And I had such a sense of despair and self-doubt and loneliness and I missed my people but I had specifically I had intentionally 
distanced myself from people for a while because I wanted to feel that loneliness. I wanted to feel that despair. I wanted to feel what it was like when you open your eyes and you're like, I really, I really fucked up my life. I really regret this. I, I don't like myself and I wanted to be embarrassed and I wanted all of those emotions. I wanted to feel all of those narratives running through my brain so that I could apply all of the things that I had already learned to see if I could get myself out of that. Could I become my own support network? Could I build that internal strength that changed the despair to creativity, to problem solving, to passion for the future again? And over the course of four days in a hotel, I went from literally thinking it would be easier to be dead. Not that I was suicidal, but it was, you have these thoughts, right? Of like, I'm done. Like, I, I, this, this life is not for me. And, and slowly, crawled my way out of that. I didn't even listen to music. I, this is right when I had COVID too. I didn't take Advil. I just drank water. I didn't use drugs. I didn't use alcohol. I didn't, I didn't call my ex-girlfriend who, uh, she called me cause my family dog died and, and she texted me and she said, Hey, I heard about the dog. And I'm like, man, this is just the worst day ever. This is the worst day. And yet I didn't, you know, she's like, let me know if you want to chat. And I didn't call her because I, I, she's always been a source of comfort and, and, um, and she props me up and she, you know, encourages me forward. And I needed to learn how to do that for myself. And so I, and I didn't understand that right at that moment, but I'm like, I'm not calling her. I'm not calling anybody. And I just sat there and, and slowly got to a point where I thought, you know, there are a couple ways that I could make money while I'm on the road. Cause I thought I was running out of money and I was now spending money on hotels that I didn't want to be in. I'm not meeting people. I'm not connecting. I'm not sharing this knowledge that I have is just so dark, but I slowly had these ideas and I'm like, you know, I could do. I could do this. I could offer this to people. I could sign up for this. And I was like, okay, it's, you know what? If I hadn't sat with this and I had just tried to feel good, then I would have completely missed the structural support that was actually building at my foundation into a realization that I have the capability to change my mindset. None of the circumstances changed, but when I left that hotel, my mindset was completely different. My perspective was entirely different and I had so much confidence again. And I was so excited for my future, even though I didn't have more money, I had less. And even though I was still had no idea how this was going to turn out or if it was going to work, but going through that experience, even just those four days has led to so many important connections around Colorado and conversations with other people that are dealing with this same confusion, despair. You know, one guy was like, I'm going to quit my program. I'm going to, uh, you know, like, I don't even want to be alive anymore. And it's like, wow, like, let's talk about that. And instead of me being like, oh, come on, like shake it off. It's like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Let's talk about that. Let's unpack that. How did you make those jumps to that sense of despair just from that one little thing going wrong? And we, and we worked through it to the point where then he's, stoked on the next you know uh semester of his program and he's feeling more curious about the world around him and and has a better sense of his own strengths and the value of the struggles he's been through and just just my struggle alone a week earlier feeling like that and then the full transition into having a conversation with him like that left such a mark on him that it actually just boosted my spirits and it felt like such a sense of validation that this is working and this is worth it. And so um, this is the path I'm on now. And I be kind of have beelined it to Colorado because I got to head south and hit the sunshine and I will do that soon. But I was specifically coming here to see you. And this is um, something that, that I had singled out as one of the most important moments for me to... Um, 
to bake into the beginning of this journey because I wanted to come back and re-remember Colorado Springs and reconnect with you, but with a, such a different perspective than obviously I had 20 years ago. I was resentful here. I was alone. I was insecure. I was very angry. I was extremely depressed. I wasn't eating food, right? And it was, it was just such a dark time that now to come back and to re-experience the same skyline, Sea Garden of the Gods, talk with you. I'm like, hello, I'm here, right? Like this is, this is the me that I have been building. But this is also the me that I think I was before all of this shit happened. And I've actually kind of worked my way backwards to that version of me. The core is there in a child. Yeah. You, when you look in their eyes, I, I, I noticed, uh, and incidentally, uh, not going to medical school was an important thing. Absolutely. Because they could never have um, given the gifts I had in that way. I would only have been dealing with a person's body primarily instead of their heart and soul. And what you're talking about is visceral learning. Um, I, I remember when I was always taken to church, the Presbyterian Church, uh, which has its own set of ideas, you know, that are far out. Uh, each, every uh, religion has its own ideas and I think covets them <laughs> if you don't believe the same. And I, I always wanted to get beyond that. So I was not too much fun as a student. And when I went through catechism class a little earlier than other kids and had a Scottish minister who just had no patience with that type of kid. Uh, <laughs> and questions, I, hey? Yes. Yeah. I remember, uh, you know, various things we would learn. One was through suffering we attain grace. Mm. And I remember saying, because I was the youngest one, but the most outspoken, you know, and the other older kids just dealt with me. And I said to this minister, Dr. Campbell, if you are smart enough to be able to avoid being in situations where you suffer because you always make a better decision than those other people, then why can't you attain grace hmm. when you have used your mind, you know? Hmm. And I remember he, he just lost it. <laughs> and he said, you'll just have to live long enough, young lady, to get the answer to that. Well, fair. Yeah. <laughs> And boy, I, you know, I have all these moments that are like photographs in my mind, which I'm sure you will have because that is the way you're dealing with your life now. And, and probably always did, I just didn't realize it. But those snapshots like a scrapbook, you know, mm. that your mind pops up yeah. in a conversation like this, where you remember, oh, that was a turning point. That was a reality. but. The moments where we actually suffer, where we're in a position where we're not certain what the result is going to be or the consequences, those are the turning points and those are the most important ones, even as bad as things are now, because that's when people will take a risk because things are so bad mm. and they will put aside something that formerly was so important that they couldn't see what truly was important. Yeah. yeah. And they weren't living fully at all. And virtually nobody does love 
or live, either one, as fully as they could. The few who have, like Mother Teresa, they would not let her die. People willed her to stay alive much longer. She tried very hard and finally gave up, she realized. I just have to accept that this is who I am, who I must be, and she worked until she no longer was alive. She was so important to the people who needed her. And <clears throat> I'm sure that most people can't understand that that is such a rewarding life, actually, that even though physically you eventually just can't do it, um, you don't have all the clouded thoughts mm. that most people have that keep them from actually having intellectual 2020 vision or spiritual 2020 vision, you know. They may see things perfectly through their eyes, but it's just one dimensional and everything is so much more complex than that. And you, if you let yourself continue to evolve, you just immediately have interactions that are very deep with people. Yes. Yeah. You, you don't have the superficial conversations, um, but you have to be willing to not really be concerned about people's opinion of you because it really doesn't matter. What matters is, are you giving everything that you have and sharing everything that you have so that at least the world around you is the best that you can make it? Yeah. And, you know, I'm happy for you because you clearly had a lot of talent as a, a young boy, but you were in an odd situation, you know? And, and most kids are. Absolutely, yeah. they, You know, their minds are so far ahead of their bodies, they, and, and they haven't had enough life experiences to understand all that they're thinking. It, it takes time for it all to come together. And then a lot of people just don't have the courage to do what you're doing. But you haven't lost anything. You know, a, a lot of people would think, look what all you're, you've lost by putting everything aside. But if you look historically, at the great people of the world who were not trying to be great people, that's not the goal. Mm. But they end up being the most that they could have ever been because they do, did exactly what you're doing. Mm. They related to the era in which they lived mm. and accepted the fact that everybody who crossed their life had some significance, you know, already uh, all the things that you've already done, they're going to come into play at one point yeah. in a very important way. You know how to do all these things that make money. You have all these connections. And the excitement of your life will be that out there, there's something just waiting for you. You will be the only person. And when everything, you know, like the planets aligning, literally, mm. uh, fall into place it'll just be so clear to you you know you you will be directed yeah i, I always that. felt that way in class yeah. you know but i was always watching all of you <laughs> you're right about that i was mm. trying to see everything i could in your eyes and the way you acted and what you said yeah. and uh i wanted i didn't want to bother with discipline and all those things 
I wanted you all to understand that that's such a waste of time. You know, and when you all came in the classroom, nobody could understand why everybody was so well behaved. But to me, the uh, validation of my thought that young people are so much more capable and evolved than people treat them. It, it happened the minute you walked in, people would come in and say, what happened? What's going on? You know, they wanted to categorize everything, write it up, and then give seminars on how to do this. Well, and, and, and even in that, you like you won uh, that Disney Teaching Award. I don't know if you remember that was the year that I that I had you. Yes, it was. And uh, they and came that, in with video cameras, and they're like, "So, how, what makes what do we do here? Like, how does this work? Like, they're trying to figure it out in terms of its mechanics, kind of thing." I would say uh, there were one hundred and fifteen thousand, I think, teachers nominated that year. I was the only one uh, that kids. Did you know that kids nominated me? No, I didn't know that. Wow. And in June, when I had to write all this stuff, I mean, it was a lot. A lot. Like, congratulations, thought, here's the paperwork. <laughs> yeah. But I thought, you know, I, I have to follow through and do my very best mm. here because those kids spent their time when they had already had a really challenging year trying to give their teacher this gift. Yeah. And even when I was out with Disney, I, I just realized, you know, I'm not like anybody here, and that's just fine. Yep, absolutely. That is just fine. Yeah. Well, I appreciate this, and I and um, we're going to go have lunch now. Okay. And I am so grateful for this. Um, as I've been kind of... As I've been kind of traveling, I'm recording lots and I'm having conversations like this. And, you know, one of the primary questions is, um, how do you, how do you either for yourself or for other people, how do you encourage them to be curious? Because I think that curiosity is where it all stems from, right? Like if we can be more curious about how we show up to our lives, then we're more receptive. So my question for you and, and, you know, as I go forward, Um, this is something that I really want to understand is how do you evoke curiosity in other people? And, and do you, does that question bring anything to mind about how you showed up in your philosophy for teaching? Well, the things that just come to mind immediately is, uh, if you are an authentic person, I try to be an authentic person and I always ask myself, what are my motives? Hmm. And I make sure my motives are pure when I'm dealing with anything of significance, right. especially young people. And <clears throat> I am so curious about life, about people, about sharing everything I know and see how much farther they can go. If they could leave me knowing everything I knew and they were only eighth graders. You know, I could imagine how the world mm. could just change es- e- exponentially. Yeah. Uh, and so I just had these ideas that I think students sensed. And I think they were curious about me. Yes. Yeah. Because I wasn't like anybody, any other teacher. They would tell me that all the time. You're not like any teacher I've ever had. And I didn't try to be like that. I just tried to be authentic, mm. which made kids curious to begin with. And I myself 
just found everything fascinated that, fascinating about them. And I think that was reinforcing. They wondered why. Right. I had kids ask me, Ms. E, why don't you teach college instead of teaching young kids? I've actually always wondered that. (laughs) I said, oh, well, because those are young people that are pretty set in their ways already. And I'm more interested in the evolving soul because I want to continue to be that evolving soul. And I can still remember all of life. Mm. Even though, because uh, I have had a lot of tragedies in my life. But I have not chose to, chosen to have that dominate. And so I guess it's been by trying to model myself mm. uh, in a way that made kids curious to see if they could live to be an old person that still loved life the way I did. Yeah and still loved people the way I did, that still had time for everybody. Uh, You know, when you have as many students as I always had, because I had three clubs (laughs) after school, one of them, the kids organized themselves, that was the minority club. They told me they were tired of coming to student council with their problems, so they had organized a club, named it, and I was to be their sponsor. Right, wow. And I... um, I hoped that they would always see that I would take any risk or challenge if they were if it was worthy. And generally if it came the ideas came from kids, I made sure they knew that I felt it was worthy. Yeah. Because they were taking a risk themselves, you know? Yeah. So <clears throat> I don't know if that answers the question fully because that's a huge question. It is. It, it's about everything in life itself. And I, my goals were really always for children, and I always felt like I was the beneficiary when they benefited because I had done my best to put them on their way into whatever life, you know, that they were going to have. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that, you know, I hadn't thought of it like this, that by showing up as an authentic person and being curious about them, that evokes the curiosity in mm-hmm. in other people because it stands out and we notice the things that stand out we remember the things that stand out mm. and we can even even if it's not in that moment we'll puzzle over it for some time uh and why did she stand out what was different about that mm-hmm. and that in and of itself makes you is curious. the curiosity mm-hmm. that's right so i appreciate that because uh that that definitely aligns with how i'm trying to show up and, and the other thing that you said is um, you know, rewarding them taking risks, right? Like supporting people that take risks and, and honoring that and celebrating that with them. I think that's a really, really important thing to be able to recognize when other people are doing that. And um, yeah, so I appreciate that. Thank you. I think being full of surprises too. Hmm. Uh, not necessarily that you plan anything, but being spontaneous in life and always relating in terms of what's relevant uh, for teachers, it's easier to have canned curriculums and all of that. But I, I would have been bored to death. And I thought, if I'm bored, how could kids possibly not be bored too, you know? So 
I always was coming up with what we were going to do and then going home and thinking, okay, now how can I make sure that happens? My mind just worked that way. And I think you all could see how my mind would just dance all over the place. And I've never tried to rein it in. Mm. And I thought how hard that was to be in my class with a teacher who thinks like that. Mm -hmm. But kids think like that too. Yeah, yeah. And so when they see that an adult can keep that joy of curiosity and excitement that youth has and, and the sense of wonder about everything that presents so many huge questions called you know life itself that um that if i could respond to that in kids and show that i still have that they would want that too they would want to be somebody who still felt that way no matter how old they were yeah you I, i'm so glad you brought that up because i remember there would be entire like i think classes were something like 50 minutes i'm not sure i don't remember um sometimes i think longer too but uh there'd be entire classes where We'd come in, we'd sit down, we all knew to just shut up <laughs> and, and pay attention. And whatever we thought we might be working on that day, we never got around to because you you had, had gotten a call. And I think you'd, I remember one time you had gotten a call from a student who was maybe like in prison or something like that. And, and or like a, it was a similar thing where you had gotten a call from a previous student from years ago and it had really, uh, something had happened for them uh, or uh, that really mattered. And, uh, and this wasn't out of character, but I just remember this one, but many times suddenly you would start speaking about something and it'd feel very tangential to like whatever it is that we thought we would be focusing on. And it got just very like philosophical and quite like reflective and it would sometimes become interactive. A lot of the time it was really just like taking it in and, you know, some kids would do that and some kids wouldn't. Um, and then at the end of it, you know, the bell rings and it's like, okay, it's time to go. And sometimes we, we, we wouldn't even move because yeah. we would still just like want to hear whatever it is that you still had to say was far more important than the 15 minutes until our next class. But then at the end of whenever you spoke, you'd say something like, this has been really productive. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, we didn't do anything that we were supposed <laughs> to do. And you think it's productive. And I loved that because it, it was such a liberating sense of uh, spontaneity that that you can show up to life. You can just embrace what's actually happening mm -hmm. instead of the thing you thought you had to do, the plan that you had in place. And it can still be productive. And you thought that that was extremely rewarding to have spent the time like that. And so then when I go, and like you said, kids, kids think like this, kids minds think like this. So then when I'm going off now and when I'm, you know, trailing off and I'm following these tangents because of an experience that matters, I know that it's productive, even if it's not according to plan, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate that. So man, I, I'm just like forever going to be unpacking the lessons that I learned from you. And I'm so grateful that I could meet up with you and, and record this and, um, and just, yeah, really <sighs> meet you face to face as adults and as like people and as humans that are choosing how they spend their time as opposed to, you know, being like forced in a class or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Every day is a gift. Mm. You know, my father didn't have sons. He had two daughters and he was a coach. <laughs> so he was surrounded by boys all the time and came home to two girls. So the poem that he chose 
to imprint in my mind was if, which was for a boy. <laughs> but there were two lines in the, the it. The poem's called If? Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Because the word if is repeated constantly. Yeah. And incidentally, when I wa- the State Department asked me to teach in Russia in October of 2002, which I did wow. uh, at, in Blagovashinsk, which is across every one of those time zones of Russia, till you get almost to the West Coast. Hmm. And when I showed up there, they had said, you know, uh, try to be low-key and all. Well, I wore a slicker and a black uh, suede cowboy hat and <laughs> cowboy boots, <laughs> and I was as American as possible, and everybody knew the American was in town because yeah. in Blagovashinsk, most people had never seen an American. I was yeah, the only one who had ever been in their museum, you know. So I, I, it's a joy of life, mm. I guess, that will hit kids because they see older people as, you know, they can't identify with them. Then when they've got this older person who has this, you know, spontaneity about life is a curiosity. But at any rate, um, the thing uh, about uh, teaching was coming back and sharing things like that in a way that made it as real to them as if they'd been there. The drama of life, you know. That's why at the end I loved having all those plays and everything. Uh, because you all got to be somebody else. You got to be personally involved with each other. You were intensely interactive, you know. And life is that dramatic if you let it be. Yeah. When people yeah. let it become stale, yeah. it, it just never is as interesting. And I figured we could always get stuff that was in the books. What you can't get over to kids is the big things about life. And so they leave a lot of times with a lot of information that they don't see how it's relevant. Mm -hmm. And you all would quit. Well, kids generally quit asking, when are we ever going to use this? Because generally I would explain (laughs) all my ideas of why this was important. But um, I think that the relevance of being Spontaneous, you know. Yeah. Those two people don't think of as being interactive, but I always did. Yeah. What were those two lines from the poem? Oh, the po- poem. I, oh, and the reason I brought up Russia uh, is because I told them. You know, they asked before I came. They want to know all these things about me, so that the kids could interact with me. Well, the poem "If" is by Rudyard Kipling. Oh, great. And of course, he has strong attachments to India. You know, and uh, so. They had a boy, and of course these are Russian-speaking kids, clearly, and English is their second language. They had a boy memorize that entire poem, mm. <laughs> which is just pages long. You wow. know? I felt great compassion for him. I hugged him, and he had no idea how appreciative. But anyway, the two lines that always hit me were, uh, if you can keep your head well all about y- you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. Mm. And then he says, then you'll be a man, my son, or whatever. It's always, you know, goes back to, this is how to be a man, my son. Can you, can you say that one more time? I didn't quite catch it. Uh, well, I, it may not be a no, direct quote. Forgive me if yeah. I paraphrase. But if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, hmm. then you'll be a man, my son. And the other one that really I have always lived by is, if you can fill the unforgiving moment was 60 seconds worth of distance run. In other words, then you'll be a man, you might say. Uh, 
And that one always hit me that, well, how much time do we always waste? And how, how is it wasted? And if we had that and we used it productively in every way, what all is accomplished in a day is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And so um, we did uh, so many things that nobody else did. None of the other kids wanted to be in that class except at the end, and they all were so jealous of you all at the end when we were doing all those plays. And life was boring for them, and you all were just full of, you know, joy and happiness and excitement and frustration, and, you know, you were living, fully living. And I think that's another thing that's really important when you're interacting with people is to feel fully engaged with them Mm -hmm. and like you're really living that moment Mm -hmm. so fully that it will just be unforgettable. Well... I have envisioned this moment for decades, literally now, and I always knew that we'd meet up. I always knew that we'd do this. I was confident in it. Um, And so in this moment, I am extremely present and grateful for it. And I appreciate the time that you've spent with me. Well, I'm equally grateful. It's quite the gift you gave me today. Thank Thank you. you.